Music is powerful. We experience its phenomenon almost daily while watching movies and TV shows. Music can make you feel tense or excited, sometimes even afraid. But can it do more? Can it teach us something about the very nature of God? Hi, I'm Charles Morris, and thanks for joining me on another episode of the Great Stories Podcast. And today I'm going back to a conversation I had in Vancouver over a decade ago with professional musician and systematic theologian, Dr. Jeremy Begbie. This conversation was so significant for me that I return to it regularly any time I try to envision the Trinity. In a moment, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Jeremy Begbie puts scripture and music together in a unique and powerful way that you'll walk away from our time together with a new appreciation for what it means to be a child of God. I know you'll enjoy this musical interview. So let's get started with an interview with Jeremy teaching in his classroom at Regent College one summer. Did you hear that? That interval has been associated for the last 500 years or so with conflict, with instability. It's called the augmented fourth, the diminished fifth, the tritone, or some medieval musicians called it the diabolus in musica, the devil in music. You wouldn't allow those two notes to sound together then. They were dis dissonant in the extreme. In the centuries which follow, it gets used widely in situations of strife and precariousness. Take two of these intervals and interlock them, and you end up with that chord, known as the chord of the diminished seventh, used widely in situations, again, of strife or instability. Think of silent movies. Where would you be without the hero going up the rickety staircase? are all strings of diminished sevenths. Where indeed would the Simpsons be, let's be honest, without the augmented fourth? It's all constructed out of that. And who are the Simpsons? On the edge of dysfunctionality, unstable, you see? They're not heroes. If you take the Simpsons theme tune and change just one note, you can entirely alter the character of The Simpsons. Let's change it to this. You see, you can turn Homer Simpson into Captain Kirk just by changing <laughs> one single note. Wasn't that cute? Change one note and it changes everything. Music is a powerful communicator. It can help lift the curtain on the drama of the gospel and even help us understand the nature of God. So, by way of Duke University in the United States, by way of Cambridge in England, by way of St. Andrews in Scotland, and here where we're coming to you from a large hall with a Steinway Grand at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. Dr. Jeremy Begbie, a professional musician, but also a theologian. Jeremy, welcome to Haven Today. Thank you very much, Charles. Lovely to be here. Dr. Begbie, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time because my son said we needed to have you on. And it may be a bit of a rarity, but you are both professional musician and theologian. I mentioned you teach at Duke. You were at Ridley Hall in Cambridge for a number of years. And do you run into people like yourself often? 
Not that often, I suppose, no. I mean, I'm not earning money full-time as a musician or anything like that at the moment. I do some professional work. I'm basically a theologian. But I suppose it's fairly, fairly rare to keep both of these things up to speed. I want to share a verse of Scripture, actually a couple of verses of Scripture, that you use in one of your books. The verses are from Revelation, Revelation 5. Let me just read this to our listeners, and then let's get started. Revelation 5, and I'll pick up at verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Now, that's a remarkable passage. Wonderful passage. Superb passage, yeah. What do you make from this scripture? You've quoted it. You've included it in one of your books. Well, the first thing I make is if you don't like singing, you know, heaven's going to have some problems for some people because there's an awful lot of it around. For those who can't sing, I'd say you will be redeemed from that when, it, when you get to heaven and, uh, and you'll be joining in the rest. I mean, singing is such a basic form of praise. So what we're being told there is that something that's basic to our humanity uh, will be caught up in the, in the praise of God. And we'll be told also that we don't do that solo, but we do it as part of a vast choir. I think, uh, I mean, if you think very often times you sing quite spontaneously, it'll be because, very often because you're cheerful, because something's gone well, so you break out into song. And I think that's what that passage is picking up on. It's this kind of spontaneous, you don't have to worry about it, think about it, plan it. It just happens. This spontaneous eruption of praise. We certainly, we are made to praise God, and we're made to bring everything that we are to praise God. And I think um, most studies have shown that singing is pretty basic to most of humanity. Some people don't, but they tend to be in a minority. And that singing, a lot of people believe, preceded language in our development as well. So um, it's just a very basic thing. Jeremy, let's talk a little bit about how you came to sing the praises of the Lord. And you do it basically on a keyboard that you play. You weren't a Christian. You weren't raised a Christian. Would you tell us how you met Christ in England? And you're part Scottish, too, I think. In Scottish, that's right. I was brought up in Scotland, in uh, Edinburgh, or just outside to begin with. Um, my mother was a Christian, my father probably not, um, a questioning inquirer, um, and I went to church a bit with them uh, early on, and then gave that up at the, about the age of about so eight or nine, I suppose. And I was, I was never an atheist, but I was a sort of lazy agnostic, and certainly wasn't going to do anything about it. Um, uh, and then at the age of 19, I, and I was uh, set on a career to do music, so music was everything for me. I think if you'd asked me at 18 or 19 about music in its place, I'd have said it's doing what most religions, as far as I can see, do. That is, it seemed to give me a purpose for living, it gave me a social life, it gave me ecstatic experience. Um, and so who needs God, basically, if anyone had come to me at that point? I, I felt that I had it all. Age of 19, a former school friend called Alan Torrance uh, started speaking to me about the person of Christ and about the Bible. He suggested I go and hear his father speak. His father was a theologian and a minister, and I heard him speak. I didn't understand a word that his father said, but he had something I didn't have, a kind of inner joy and total integrity about his life 
that I'd never seen before. I got to know him and Alan, of course, I mean, the two of them together. They showed me a hospitality and a graciousness that I'd never experienced, I think, from anyone before. And they were both very, very bright intellectually. So I was seeing people who could combine a kind of head and heart, uh, a fervent faith, with obviously great intellectual depth and sophistication as well. I used to think all Christians, you know, in those days just were mindless. Uh, you become a Christian, it's an intellectual suicide. Um, here I thought, here these were people who really knew the intellectual tradition of the West very, very well, and yet could still be Christians in the midst of it. And you didn't even know at the time that you yourself would someday become a scholar, a theologian. No, I certainly didn't. I wasn't. I mean, I was interested intellectually in music, but that was about it. My main interest in music was, was practical rather than intellectual. And funnily enough, it's when I then I went on after that very soon to study for ordination. I felt a call to, to ordained ministry and studied theology. It's then that I became intellectually alive. I mean, it's then that my mind started really switching on. So far from having to switch your mind off when you became a Christian, I find it was just the opposite. And right now I'm thinking about parents who may be listening to the program. Mm. Maybe they have teenagers who are mm. trapped in their rooms, listening to music, never coming out, yeah. and they worry. I've mm. been there. Mm. It's interesting what you said a moment ago. If you had had a God, your God was your music early on. That's right. Would you say that's the case? I would say that's the case for millions of young people, not just young people, many others as well, that they have found in music um, something that speaks to so many parts of them, and particularly their emotional life, their physical life, their bodily life. Um, and, and it's more than understandable. I mean, music is a, it can be an idol very, very quickly, very quickly. Why don't we talk about how, as you became a believer and then began to read and began to study, and you already were a musician, how did your music begin to be integrated into your faith? Let's take a doctrine. Why don't we talk about the Trinity? Would you talk about the Trinity with me? Yeah. The first thing after becoming a Christian is... That happened is a lot of people said to me, well, now you can write hymns for the church. Uh, now you can work on music and worship. Now, I've done a lot of that, and that's one way in which I've tried to keep these worlds together. Second, I try to think, well, if I'm a Christian, and if the Christian worldview is, is true and intellectually rich, and if confessing Jesus as Lord means the whole of life is illuminated, then it, the Christian faith ought to be saying something about music. But there was nothing written at the time, virtually very little written at the time. So I had to work at those connections. And that's what I call theology for music, theology for the sake of music. But there's a third form I've used, and that is music for the sake of theology. That is, I've been trying to ask, how can music help us think more faithfully, more accurately about God? How can music open up the gospel more fully? I was teaching after, I, w I worked in the church for three years, and then I came back to teach in Cambridge and teaching theology. And if there ever was a piano close by or a CD player or something, I was finding I was using music very, very naturally as I was beginning to teach. And I was using it because sometimes you could say things musically in ways that you couldn't say with words alone. Um, so, for instance, yes, I suppose the Trinity is the obvious example, which is meant to be one of the most difficult doctrines. Um, and I think the reason why it's often been a difficult doctrine for people is we've relied too much on the I to tell us what's true and, what, and what's possible to believe. And when way we look at things, obviously, is that you can't, for instance, see red and yellow in the same space at the same time. 
we, when we look at things, we look at things in terms of objects that either exclude each other or merge into something else. So we see, if we take a bit of red paint and put it on yellow paint, it'll hide the yellow paint, or the other way around. Or, if the paint's still wet, that turns into orange. You can't see red and yellow in the same space at the same time as red and yellow. That's the way our eyes work. Now, if you apply that to the Trinity, how can you have three and one and one and three? How can you have, say, three colors in the same space at the same time uh, while remaining three colors? And I think that's, that's half the problem with people in the Trinity. They've relied on their eye, and it's very hard to think threeness and oneness together. When it comes to the world of sound, because of the way we hear sound, that simply isn't true. If you take that note, for instance, that I'm now playing, and that we're now hearing, what we hear fills the whole of our herd space. It's not in one place and not another place, like the patch of red or yellow. It's in one space and the whole of our herd space. If I play this note, that second note is in the same herd space, and yet we hear it as a second note. So both of those notes are filling the same space, and yet we're hearing them as distinct. You can do that in the world of sound, you can't do it in the, with the world of the eye. If you take three notes, all three notes are filling the same space, but we hear them as distinct. And that, I think, is a, a, a wonderful way of coming at the Trinity. If you take John's Gospel, we hear that the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. That's very hard to picture. It's very easy to hear. <laughs> because those sounds sound through each other. They actually sound through each other. Uh, you can't do that visually to the same extent. In fact, you really can't do it at all. But you can do it very easily in the world of sound. So those three notes of that chord are sounding through each other. Now, I found in churches, in schools, colleges, with agnostics, with atheists, uh, as well as uh, many Christians, that when they come across this, they begin to understand the Trinity in the way that the New Testament is trying to tell us, basically. So this isn't about getting away from the Bible into a fancy world of doctrine. These are things that arose from Scripture, but where we've often brought the wrong mental tools to bear, so we've suppressed the truth rather than revealed it. And what you're really doing is like a preacher. That's right. Using an illustration or a story or something to make the point, but you're doing it in a much bolder way, I think. You're doing it with music. I think it's a bit bolder than just illustrating, because it, it's a bit like that, but the trouble is, I don't want to suggest that we're simply illustrating what we already know. I'm trying to say that music here is a vehicle of discovery. And I find once you've seen, or rather heard this, uh, you'll never think about the Trinity in the same way again. At least I don't. Now, and of course there are lots of other things. There's resonance between these notes. They're setting each other off. They're freeing each other. They're becoming more full in sound as they set each other off, which is what the Father, Son, and Spirit are doing eternally. And you've done it with a chord three notes. But there's also this interaction, this worship, this communication that's going on in the Godhead. I know I've heard you do this before. Music is a way to explain that as well. Indeed. This is the Trinitarian life. Um, other notes around that will be set off. So if I take that chord and I open up that string below, I think I can get it to sound. Oh, no, probably above. Hang on a second. See if I can set. See if I can set that note above. Off. Do you hear that note? And no, I didn't play that note. It was set off by the Trinity, so to speak. So what's happening in the Christian faith is that God is, so to speak, sending out His sound waves to us, as with the sound waves of the Spirit, 
and catching us up in his own life. Now, that's what the, that's what the New Testament's saying. But the trouble is, if you, tr- if you over-rely on the, wor- on the eye to explain that, that can be quite hard. That can be quite hard. I think that's... that's so if, the trouble is, we've often given the impression in the West that the Trinity is a, a problem to be solved, um, which is a terrible business, because we're saying then God is a problem to be solved. Where I don't think the Trinity is not a problem to be solved. The Trinity is a reality to be enjoyed. And the world of sound and music can open up that for us like nothing else. I think when that first really became apparent to me, the idea of music as a vehicle of discovery, was when I was working with a small group, an instrumental group, in a local church in Surrey, of all places, near London. And I had an hour to work with them, and I had given them music to play for most of the day, and we had this hour left over without any music to play. We'd rehearsed everything that needed rehearsing. These are totally amateur musicians. Uh, a, a flute player who'd been playing two weeks, um, a synthesizer player who was 63-year-old, th- um, we had a harpist, about 18 clarinets from what I remember, a euphonium, which is a kind of mini-tuba. Um, I mean, the kind of orchestra you would only ever get in the Christian church and absolutely nowhere else in Western civilization. So we had this hour to spend, and I was, so I thought, We've got now to spend, let's put a biblical text in front of them. So we put Matthew chapter, is it chapter 3, where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And I just put the text in front. I said, we're going to turn this into music. We're going to improvise this particular passage. And they looked at this. They said, where's the music? And I said, this is the music. So they looked at the text very carefully and read it. And I said, okay, now I don't want you to imagine it in your mind's eye. I want you to hear it in your mind's ear. So what does it sound like in the wilderness? And the synthesizer player sunk a, a big bottom sea. Uh, it was a very big ch- kind of cavernous church, almost cathedral-like in its sound. So it was this wonderful, echoey, cavernous sound. We had two electric guitars, and they started squealing around um, uh, with sounds of the wind through the rocks and all that kind of thing. So that went on for a bit. Then we said, what about John the Baptist? And he comes. So we had this trumpeter who... Uh, who could only play loud or very loud or extremely loud. This was the only kind of volume range he had. We put him in a corner and he played a... He just had these four notes and that was the John the Baptist theme. We put him on the other end of the church so that you know he could play as loud as he liked and very rudely, which of course is John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist wasn't polite and he wasn't a great musician. Exactly, there's nothing refined about... That was the whole point. There was nothing refined about John the Baptist. So, and then I, then I said, okay, what happens? And there was a long pause, and they looked at the text, and said, well, they flock to hear John the Baptist, and they'll flock around him. So the flute player said, we should be sort of going around that theme that John the Baptist is playing. And then I said, yes. And she said, what note is he playing? And I said, you're not, I'm not going to tell you, because you're going to have to listen, and you're going to have to pick up that note yourself. And this, of course, is something amateur musicians don't do, and especially orchestral musicians. They're not used to listening to anybody else apart from themselves. But here she was having to listen to him. And she started that way. Clarinets came in. Um, everyone started playing, ultimately, just with these four notes. Then in comes Jesus, eventually. I mean, after quite a time. So the synthesizer player, equaling, we had this sort of, that sort of sound, I remember. And the synthesizer came in like that. With the, brought the whole thing up to E-flat. Now, this was the new age coming, the new age of Jesus into the midst of the old age. And, of course, for a time we had, we had, sorry, we had that, that tonality with that tonality, 
which is exactly what Matthew 3 is trying to get at, of course. This is the new age bursting in to the old age, and we have an overlap of the two ages for a time. Then, of course, there came the great moment, what about the Jesus theme? And this flute player, who'd been playing only a few weeks, said, well, why not take the John the Baptist theme and turn it upside down? Which is a technique known as inversion, which you would learn fairly far on in music theory. She had learned it after a few weeks playing the flute from reading Matthew chapter 3. Then the other clarinetists and floors started joining in. And, and it was extraordinary sound. Um, and the whole thing be uh, developed beautifully. Unfortunately, we couldn't play this improvisation at the service the next day because we couldn't tell them exactly how long it would last, uh, which is a sad thing, but that's life. Now, the reason I'm telling you is, that is, what was music doing there? Music wasn't expressing what they already knew. Music was there acting as a vehicle of discovery of the biblical text. So, to say this is about getting away from the Bible and just expressing yourself, they weren't expressing themselves on the side. They were expressing the biblical text, if anything, or at least they were discovering the biblical text, is a better way of putting it. So, they were reading that text with the kind of closeness you would expect from a great scholar. And I bet you half of them had never actually read that text in detail before. And I bet you, if I'd said, let's have a Bible study and talk about this text, no, nobody would have said anything. So, this was a way in which they were all musicians, that was their language. And it was a way in which that text was speaking to them through their language. But it was still the text, so we were very faithful to the text. I didn't allow them to, to veer off the text or to think what it must have been like or any of that. It was only the text was coming to light in music. And that made me think this has got some very serious issues for the way we do theology, for the way we learn the faith, for the way people discover um, uh, the Christian faith and the riches of the gospel. And if that's true for music, could it not also be true for painting, for film, for dance, for sculpture, and, and all the rest? And it relates to worshiping God. And very much relates to worshiping God. This led very naturally into worship and praise, undoubtedly. Yeah. If you just joined us, you're listening to a special Haven Today, and we have Dr. Jeremy Begbie with us on the program. He is a musician, as you can tell, of course, but he's also a theologian. And we're bringing the two together in a rather unique way. Dr. Jeremy Beckby, would you mind leading us in prayer? No, not at all. Not at all. We're very happy to do that. We thank you, Father, for the gift of music. We thank you for the particular things that are possible through music. We ask you to open our imaginations to the possibilities we may never have thought about before as to what music can do to disclose, to help us discover the riches and wonder of your truth. The truth made known in Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen. When music and words are combined, it is presumed music will naturally, by default, fall into line with the meaning of the words. What we receive from the words can't be fundamentally affected by the music. Take the way a lot of popular music is assessed. Until fairly recently, when people outside the music business wanted to study rock music, they would analyze the words, what was called content analysis. It was widely assumed that popular music makes its social mark mainly through its lyrics, and that the music just buckles down in conformity. Many Christian books on rock music and rock video have often followed suit. 
They've assumed the meaning is carried through the words alone, and the music acts as a kind of coating at best, and little more. Or another example, if you read histories of Christian worship, very often you'll find they're nothing of the sort, but in effect histories of texts, prayers, acclamations, liturgies, and so on. If music does get a mention, it's assumed it's not making any serious difference to the words we might happen to use. It's not hard to see the holes in this kind of model. Try swapping hymn tunes, for instance. I presume we know that tune. I presume we know that tune for these words. Well, it's a reasonably kind of upbeat and chirpy and cheerful tune, and it has a lot to commend it, and it's very singable, and I like it. But you try putting it to this. Well, just try it. What a friend. goodness me. <laughs> and now, something more about sin and grief bearing, carrying, so that we can carry everything to God in prayer because He has carried our grief and sin. It's a different Christology, to use a different uh, technical term. Same words, of course, same words, but look what the music's done. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Isn't it amazing how a change in music can deepen the meaning of those words? How just changing the tone can remind us that it was the suffering of Jesus that made it possible for us to carry everything to God in prayer. On this haven today, we're coming to you again from Regent College in Vancouver. We're in a large hall, sitting at a Steinway Grand is... Uh, Someone who teaches at Cambridge, St. Andrews. Now he's a professor at Duke Divinity School in North Carolina, Dr. Jeremy Begbie. Professional musician, but also systematic theologian. Jeremy, welcome back to the program again today. Thank you very much, Charles. Lovely to be here. Jeremy, before you start responding, I want to set up our discussion today with just mentioning a woman named Gina Welch. She calls herself a secular Jew. She finished up going to school at Berkeley and Yale and went on to grad school at the University of Virginia. And that's when she realized there were a lot of Christians out there. And to her, they seemed like aliens from a foreign planet. And she didn't have a clue where they were coming from. She decided to go underground and see what they really believe. And that's what she did. She wrote a book about it called The Land of Believers. She went underground. She gained some weight, grew out her hair. She figured she needed to look a little dowdy if she was going to pull this off. And then she showed up at the church that Jerry Falwell founded in Virginia. We're on the air in Lynchburg, Virginia, every morning. Thomas Road Baptist Church is there. She told them she was a new believer, and she stayed for a year, and she was baptized. She even went on a missions trip. She led a young girl to pray the sinner's prayer. She never even came close to faith in Christ, though. And she says that in her book. What she did, though, Jeremy, was form an impression of evangelical Christians, and it boils down to this. Nice people, but they don't know how to think. 
She says Christians are completely comfortable with completely contradictory notions like the Incarnation, the Trinity that we talked about yesterday in the program. As far as she could see, Christian beliefs completely bypass the brain. So, Dr. Begbie, let me ask you, you're a theologian Mm -hmm. and a musician. Mm -hmm. You teach in the southern United States. And I haven't got a lot of hair either. That's the other thing, yes. (laughs) You're from England and Scotland to boot. Is that true, would you say? No, I wouldn't say it's true. I think we've got to recognize the truth in it, mind you. And that is, to be a Christian does mean you have to learn to think in a different way. Now, Jesus makes that clear in many of his parables and much of his teaching, that you can't just fit the teaching of Jesus or the gospel into the categories that you already have without a lot of discomfort. Uh, Paul makes that clear when he talks about the renewing of the mind in, in uh, Romans 12. The, the word literally means something like re-schematizing. So it's not a matter of when you become a Christian, you just add information to the filing cabinet. The filing cabinet re- needs to be redesigned. After all, we are saying, are we not, as Christians, that the heart of the secret of reality, the secret of all history, the secret of the cosmos, is to be found in a crucified Messiah, would be uh, 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 apparently in a failed Messiah. And we're saying, therefore, the secret of reality is to be found in this ghastly, tortuous execution. Now, that is not immediately obvious. <laughs> to put it mildly. And when someone does believe that that is the secret to God, meaning of the world, then it is a miracle. So we need to reckon that a lot of it's going to jar with the way we might naturally think. And I don't think we should be ashamed of that. There's a way sometimes Christians make things, how can I put it, make things a little bit too easy to believe. Um, So she's got a point. There are going to be some things which on the face of it, don't make sense to the unredeemed mind are going to be contradictions and just sound kind of silly three and one one and three Uh, but what i found is when you enter that world enter the world of the gospel and allow the biblical text to speak and the traditions of the christian um, faith to speak they begin to make so much sense of the world at large and our lives in the world at large that um, they make far more sense, how can I put it, that, than anything else. That is, it's like getting inside a new car and seeing the, the world in a very, very different way and seeing far more because the windows are that much cleaner. Uh, you see more, you hear more, you understand more. And then you learn to think in a Christian and a new way. Now, does that mean there's no continuity between the Christian thinks and the way somebody who's not a Christian thinks? Of course there's continuity. There are links. But we have, to be, we have to be careful to be distinctively Christian and not be ashamed of it. Not, uh, the, the quick answer, though, to the question is, of course, I don't believe that becoming Christian means intellectual suicide. Um, I think it means becoming intellectually alive. When I became a Christian, a lot of people said to me, oh, that means you will have to shrink. Your, your mind will have to switch off to a whole lot of things. Your world, will, a musical world, will turn from a color to black and white. It was exactly the opposite. I'm far more interested in music now than I ever was before I was a Christian, which is a very odd thing to say. Um, That once you become a Christian, the things that you thought were interesting, a lot of them, are far more interesting. Um, I'm far more curious about the world now than I was before. I'm far more curious about lots of other disciplines, lots of other things as well. So that it's just the opposite. What I thought was color was actually black and white. 
Well, Jeremy, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what happened after you became a Christian. Christians are promised a member of the Godhead coming to live inside us. Indeed. The Holy Spirit. I think Christians maybe tend to fall into a couple of categories. Some of us focus on what Jesus accomplished, and we don't think a lot about the Spirit. And then some of us who are totally open to the Holy Spirit tend to forget about the work of Christ. But you've used the music of Bach Mm. to show how God works these two together. I've heard you do that, and it's beautiful. So would you mind sharing that with us today? Yes, of course. That's fine. Well, the great thing about Bach, and it happens to other composers as well, is that you get this extraordinary mixture of regularity and the unexpected. So, for instance, in a piece like this... Quite often I play that to people and say, well, I stopped there, can you tell exactly what's going to happen next? And they say, no, I can't. And that's the cleverness of a piece like that is that it sounds improvised. It's even if you know the style well, even if you know Bach well, it's almost impossible at any point to predict exactly what will come next. And yet, what does come makes sense. So you've got this music that makes wonderful sense, music that is faithful, you could say and regular and gloriously ordered. And yet at the same time, it is unpredictable, new. And that, I think, is a wonderful parable of what the Holy Spirit is doing. That the Holy Spirit is taking what God has given, supreme the accomplishment of Christ, and weaving all sorts of new things out of that once for all accomplishment. Now it is faithful to the accomplishment, so it's not arbitrary, it's not weird things. But on the other hand, it's not simply repeating the exact words of yesterday or whatever. It's not simply repetition. The Spirit is not in the business of repetition. So it's part of the creation or or even the recreation that's going on inside of of believers. believers. Precisely. And that's what makes, I find, being Christian so exciting, that you never quite know what the Holy Spirit's going to do yet, but you can trust the Spirit to do something faithful, not arbitrary, but faithful to you. Now, to to extend the analogy a bit further of improvisation, when you improvise, you are improvising in a way that is true to this occasion, this place, this time. So we're in an empty hall now, and there's only yourself, Charles, and a sound engineer. But if I were playing a piece like that, to you, I would probably play it a little bit more intimately. If this hall was full of people, and it had a bit more echo, I would project it a bit more. What am I doing there? I'm not playing exactly the same thing, I'm improvising. Or, as the word I I like to use about the Holy Spirit, I'm particularizing this music for this time and for this occasion. And I'll never play it exactly the same way each time. That seems to me is what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Spirit is taking the accomplishment of Christ and the great things, uh, obviously the great things of Scripture and supremely the accomplishment of Christ and is bringing that alive for different people at different times in different ways. That's what a good player will do. That's what a good improviser will do. Um, 
And that's what a composer like Bach does very naturally, even within the music, even before you performed it. He'll give you that impression that he's particularizing things. And, um, oh gosh, it happens in hundreds of ways. Any jazz musician will know that. You'll never play anything same, same thing twice. And yet, it's the same song. And yet, it's the same song. And of course, we know that Bach was a believer too. And Bach was most definitely a believer. And I think saw this probably more clearly than anybody else. It's something Bach often did also, he took one of his own tunes, or a hymn tune, and he did perhaps 30 things with it, you know, through his life. So he, he, he's doing this quite naturally. He kept going apps over and over again. Let me ask you one other thing, Jeremy. There's something else that music helps us understand, and that's this togetherness idea. Not just the Holy Spirit in us personally, but this togetherness that believers have together uh, when we worship. And I know that's something you've thought about too, isn't it? Yes, I mean, music has amazing power to hold people together. One of the ways it does that is through this, as I was talking about earlier, through the ways in which it takes many sounds and puts them together. And we hear those sounds, as I was saying earlier, in the one heard space. So we've got this amazing overlapping cluster of sounds in our heard space, and yet we hear them as distinct. When we hear lots of people, where the people perhaps were singing, I don't know, a large chord with uh, maybe 500 other people, uh, it is an extraordinary experience through our ears we're having of overlapping sounds. That is one way in which the spirit is uniting us through music. Another way is that music appeals very much to the body and to uh, bodily movement. Uh, it's a very interesting experiment that's been done, and that is if I were to put a metronome on the piano here and it were to tick away, and then I tried to tap my finger in time with that, I will be much more accurate in my tapping if I invited you over to this piano and you did that with me. In other words, when I'm with somebody else, I can synchronize my rhythm much more accurately. Many experiments have shown that. So that music has an extraordinary ability to bind people and synchronize them very, very closely. And those who have done a lot on the anthropology of music, your music in many cultures, have realized that music can unite people like nothing else, which is the body of Christ in action. And yet, you can be different at the same time. So you don't have to be the same as everybody else. You might be united in rhythm, but you might be doing different things with the music, or you might be improvising or whatever, but you're still held together, which is the body of Christ in action. One body, many gifts. Let me just throw out another doctrine for us. You're a theologian. We get that. Right. And you are a musician, obviously. Let's talk about the incarnation. It's a hard concept to grasp. It's easy to get it wrong. I've heard a lot of people in my life say that Jesus is half God and half man, but that's not it, is it? How does the Bible describe Jesus? Well, the Bible describes Jesus as fully God and fully human. Now, again, to come back to what I was saying earlier, if we're only thinking in terms of the way we see the world, that's very hard to understand, because how can two colors, say, or two objects, be in the same place at the same time, and yet recognizable as two, as two, two things, or two objects? That's very hard to visualize, and inevitably you'll have to compromise. You'll have to say, well, if, God, if, if, if the divine bit's you know, like a big circle, here's the human bit, the divine bit will have to get a bit smaller to get into the same space. Or the human bit will have to get a bit smaller. It's like kind of zero-sum thing, you know, when you've got a limited space and you try to squeeze them into the same space. 
That's the problem with thinking purely in terms of the eye. You think in terms of two sounds coming together, it's actually relatively easy because two sounds fill the same heard space, and yet they're not compromised. They don't shrink in the space of each other. In fact, they do the opposite. They enhance each other. Those two notes enrich each other, and I think that's the best way of understanding um, the two natures of Christ, quite honestly, on that. If you look at the history of the struggles over the two natures of Christ, fully human and divine, you'll find very often people are relying on visual ways of thinking. Uh, and sadly, then, w they compromise one nature in relation to the other. We say, well, he wasn't fully human. I mean, he kind of looked human. And, and he sort of did his best. But basically, he wasn't struggling in Gethsemane. He wasn't struggling at the temptation in the wilderness. That's all a kind of show. And of course, the Scripture says he struggled as well. Absolutely, that he really was tempted. Otherwise, he can't help you. He simply can't help you. And on the other hand, you get those who say, okay, he was fully human, but he couldn't have possibly been divine. Or God had to kind of shrink a lot, or God had to sort of give a bit of his divinity to Jesus, but not, you know, not the whole thing. And all And that's, it's very, very clear in John's gospel. The Word is made flesh, the Word is God. The, the Son is the eternal Son who, who loves the Father from all eternity. So the New Testament is, is, is thrusting something before us, but we have to allow our minds to be renewed in order to begin to understand that. And I've found that music is a powerful way in which that can happen. If you just joined us, you're listening to Haven today, and I'm Charles Morris with me, Dr. Jeremy Begbie. Jeremy, one other question, and I ask people who are on our program a lot this question. Sure, oh, help. It's going to be very frightening. <laughs> what does Jesus mean to you personally? Who is Jesus in your life today, at this point in your life? Jesus is the one who has been through the worst for me in order that I can have the best. He's the one who won't let me down. And he's the one who's risen from the dead as the promise of what I will receive. That's who he is. He's also the one who, who prays for me when I can't pray. Who worships in every service I go to, even though I may not feel like worshiping. He asks me to come and worship with him. He's the one who loves the Father, even when I find it difficult to love the Father. He's the one who squeezes out of me that word, Abba, Father, when I don't feel like it. <laughs> That's who he is. Jeremy Begbie, thank you for joining me here on Haven today. Thank you, Charles. It's been a great pleasure. Would you mind closing our time together in prayer? Yes, of course. Thank you, Father, for the miracle of the gospel. Thank you for the wonderful gift of music and all that it can speak about and all we can hear through it of your truth, Father. Thank you for your Son, Jesus, all that he has done, all that he has meant to us. And we thank you for the promise that is embodied in his life, his death, and his rising again. Keep our faith firm and confident. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of Great Stories with Charles Morris. Wasn't that image of the Trinity as three notes of a single unified chord one of the best explanations you have ever heard of our faith's most profound mystery? I know it was for me. 
Now, if you want to hear more conversations like this, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us get the word out by leaving a five-star review. You can also go to haventoday.org to sign up for our weekly email and discover additional episodes posted on the blog. And as always, thank you for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris.